so good to have the choir back. Uh, having the, uh, you know, preaching to the choir is a thing, so. Yeah. Well, as we get started this morning, would you pray with me? God, thank you for um, bringing a spirit of joy into this room. And Lord, we ask that, um, that a spirit of Sabbath would fall upon us, that we would feel content and satisfied in your presence, and that as we look at your word, that you would amaze us with what you are up to in this world. And we, are, we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we come to the last of the 10 stories in this series called 10 Stories. And if you are brand new with us this morning, you might have to hold on to your seat a little bit um, while I run through some of this because we have been working off of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And the series has been a great journey all through the Old Testament and has given us a chance to remember again and again and again how faithful God is to his promises. And we have seen this as we have encountered all of these people in the genealogy. And what we have learned is that God's promises rely on God's goodness, God's providence, and God's power, not ours. And that is both good news and a great comfort. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember the, words, Lord, the Lord's word to Zerubbabel. I'll say that three times fast. The Lord's word to Zerubbabel through the prophet Zechariah. And that word was, not by might nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might nor by power but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. As we entered into the third section of the genealogy, we began to encounter a sharp shift away from the monarchy and armies and towards the temple, away from the works of humanity and toward the work of the Spirit of God. And today, we're going to talk about one of the two last people named in the genealogy besides Jesus. And we're going to encounter a man named Joseph who is described as the husband of Mary. But before I get to Joseph, I want to zoom out a bit and take a look at the genealogy as a whole. And I want to remind you of a couple of things. And first, this might seem really obvious to you, but the genealogy is the very first thing that Matthew includes is in his account of the life of Jesus. Now, I say this because most of the time when we read the Bible, especially the beginning portions of Matthew, we skip past the genealogy. Do not lie to me. I know that you have done this because I have done it as well. And what we do is we start right at the birth of Jesus. But before we junk the genealogy, let's ask ourselves why Matthew thought the genealogy was so important that he includes it as the very first thing. It is the lens, the foundation. It is what we are supposed to see. Everything that comes after it, we're supposed to see it through this lens. Well, some of the answers to why Matthew thinks this is so important could be found in the structure of the genealogy itself. Now, 
you might remember, or you might not, that the genealogy is in three sections, and Matthew tells us that there are 14 generations in each one of these sections. Now, section one begins with Abraham. It ends with King David. The second section begins with David as the father of Solomon. It runs 14 generations, ends with the exile to Babylon. But unless you are an Old Testament scholar, and if you are, please raise your hand because I could use your help, but... Unless you are an Old Testament scholar, you are probably not going to have noticed that in the second section, Matthew skips past three kings with no explanation. It's odd. And then in section three, if you count the actual names that are in section three, there are 13, not 14. Unless you add the title Messiah. Now, is Matthew just bad at math and bad at history? Or is something else going on here? Well, people who study the Gospel of Matthew are fairly sure that Matthew is trying to communicate something to us through a Jewish tradition called Gematria. Now, the idea behind Gematria, and we have this in English too, is that all the letters in Hebrew have numerical values associated with them. Now, if you grew up in the age that I did, you remember on the phone where it used to have like ABC by one, and you know, you know what I'm talking about, or in the early text messages when you had to scroll through all the letters? Well, you get the, the idea. Gematria so, assigns a, a numerical value to every letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And if you apply that idea to the name David, which not incidentally is found five times in this genealogy, what you find is is that the numerical values of the letters of the name of David add together are 14. And so when Matthew uses the number 14, he is pointing us to David. In fact, he skips those three kings in order to do it. But wait, there's more. If you again zoom out and you look at the entire genealogy and you remember that the last section has 13 rather than 14 names, and if you add up the generations that Matthew has given us, so 14 in the first section, 14 in the second, and 13 rather than 14, 13 in the third section, that total is 41 rather than 42. But because we're playing with numbers, or Matthew is at least, is the number 41 significant? It turns out that it is. Because if you add up the values of the letters in the name Abraham, we get 41. Now the idea being communicated, as we've said this all along, is that Abraham is woven through the entire genealogy. And more than that, if you look closely, you also notice that the name Jesus is placed in the 41st position of the genealogy, connecting the name of Abraham with the name Jesus. Matthew is trying to make the point that that Jesus is not just a descendant of Abraham. He is the descendant of Abraham. Now, this really isn't too surprising because in verse 1 in the gospel, Matthew describes Jesus as the son of Abraham and the son of David. But what happens if we, I don't know, add up all the values of the 13 names we find in section 3? Well, we get the number 546, which not significant really. 
But what happens if we add in the numerical value of Messiah, the 14th title? Well, it has a numerical value of 42, and it's also in the 42nd place in the genealogy. So the word Messiah and the name Abraham become connected. And if we add 42 to 546, the sum of all the names in that section plus Messiah, you get 588, which is significant because if you multiply David by Messiah, it is 588. Now, I know this all sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? I know. I thought it sounded crazy when I first looked at it. But it is something that Matthew uses to communicate. If you add up all the names in the entire genealogy, including Messiah, you get a total of 1,722. And this is the number you get when you multiply Abraham, which starts the genealogy, and the numerical value of Messiah. So when you multiply Abraham by Messiah, you get every single name in the genealogy. What is Matthew doing here? He's trying to tell us that the Messiah and Abraham are connected, and that in fact, the promise made to Abraham will be fulfilled in the Messiah. Now, none of this is magic, but it had to have taken some time to do, don't you think? I'm the most math illiterate person on the face of the planet, Gematria was something that that people did back then. And because the Gospel of Matthew is directed towards a Jewish audience, Matthew knew that the rabbis who loved a good genealogy were going to dig into this thing. And he wanted this to be very clear, that Jesus is both king and Messiah. He is telling a very specific specific story through this genealogy, and he's connecting Abraham, David, the history of Israel, Jesus, and the Messiah all together. He is linking everything together, generation through generation through generation, and through Gematria. Now, if we zoom back in on the individuals who are in the genealogy, we're going to take a look at Joseph, who, for most of us, shows up for about 30 seconds during Christmas, right? And then he disappears. He doesn't take center stage at Christmas at all, which of course makes sense because we are focused on God's faithfulness in bringing forth the Messiah as a baby born in Bethlehem, which just to throw this out there, if you think about all the generation after generation after generation, it begins to make sense that the Messiah is going to come in the form of a baby because begat, begat, begat. But since Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, he tends to get skipped over almost as fast as the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. But should he? Let me read to you a few verses from Matthew chapter 1. Now, this is the spot where we usually start the Gospel of Matthew after we skip to the genealogy. Um, It's the one spot in the Bible where Joseph shows up most clearly. And by the way, It might be best, as I'm reading this, for you to keep in mind those words from Zechariah 4. Not by might, nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I'm in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and I'm going to read down through verse 25. Listen to the word of the Lord. 
This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Matthew has been telling us the story of cosmic proportions in this genealogy spanning generation after generation, and the story continues now with Joseph, who, like so many other people in this genealogy, has a problem. Joseph is betrothed to a woman named Mary who turns up pregnant before they have physically consummated this relationship. And like so much, we skip past this at Christmas because Mary's pregnancy does not go well with gingerbread and hot chocolate. Um, the scandal here is huge. It's, it's just so big. It's, it, we skip past it, but it's, for first century readers of this, they would have been like taking steps back. Like, what is going on here? Because see, when we say that Mary and Joseph are pledged or betrothed, what we're saying is is that Mary has been set aside. She has been sanctified, separated apart for Joseph. Joseph has paid the bride price to her father. They have agreed to marry. For all intents and purposes, in first century, in first century culture, they are already married. And so, Sexual relationships outside of that agreement is considered adultery. According to the Mishnah, which is sort of the written version of the oral Torah tradition, adultery during this period of time is actually a worse sin than adultery once the marriage has actually taken place, probably because it is breaking the sanctity of the agreement. So Mary's pregnancy here is so serious. The penalty for Mary and for the man that she has been with, pun intended conceivably, um, did you get that? (laughs) The penalty is death. Now, think about this. This is a very odd way to begin the narrative around the birth of the Messiah. And here's the real kicker. Because Joseph is a righteous man who is faithful to the law, he must break the betrothal. He doesn't have a choice. There is not room for him to stay faithful to the law and just overlook adultery on Mary's part. And the Bible actually says he does come to this conclusion, though he does decide to do this quietly. And then in a dream, an angel tells him to do the opposite of what he's already decided to do under the law. The angel says, take Mary home to be your wife. 
And I think it is very significant that the angel says, do not be afraid to take her home as your wife. That tells me that Joseph is afraid. But he does it anyway. And then when the baby is born, he does what the angel tells him to do, which is a bit unusual because he names the baby. He names him Jesus. And by doing so, by following what the angel has said, and by Joseph naming the baby himself, he has claimed Jesus as his own. As I was working through this story, I had a thought. What would it be like if Joseph was part of our worshiping community and and, and one Sunday told this story in front of the church? What would we think about that story? I think if we are honest, most of us would have listened to his story, been sympathetic to it, been sympathetic to him, but deep down thought, hmm, okay, Joseph, if that's what you want to believe, I think that we would look at Joseph as a man who had been humiliated and duped, not as a saint of the church. I think that's what Joseph was afraid of. He was afraid he was going to lose his status, his standing as a righteous man. But we have to remember, not by might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. See, other than the comment by the angel, the Bible doesn't really tell us how Joseph felt. We have to imagine it. And I think we can imagine that that what he was going through, even as a righteous man, was nothing like what he had signed up for when he met Mary for the first time. I don't think he had this in mind. Who would have? I think what he had in mind was probably quiet nights by the fire with Mary, a prosperous carpentry business, maybe a kid or two, not this, not this very different life that the Lord is giving him. But Joseph gets my attention because though this is not what he had planned, even though God's plan for him is very uncomfortable and very difficult, and even though this throws him into sort of a religious turmoil, he acts in obedience. The discomfort of obedience is something I have many of us struggle with, all of us struggle with. You see, we think faith equals comfort, and sometimes we've even been taught that faith equals comfort, which might be true enough. I mean, faith can equal comfort when faith is the conviction that God is at work and that all will be well because the Lord is at work. Faith like that does bring comfort, but faith also requires you to be obedient to the word of God. Faith requires stepping into situations and circumstances that you cannot see the end of, that you cannot predict where they are going. And when faith requires that of you, many times, most times, every time, obedience isn't comfortable at all. I mean, read the rest of the Joseph story in Matthew, and you will see 
Joseph is probably around when the Magi show up. His name's not mentioned, but because of circumstances, you would say that he would be there. And, and the Magi showing up is a much more wild event than our Christmas crushes let on. I mean, these Magi are known in that part of the world at that time as kingmakers. They are the ones who identify when new kings come into the world. And this sounds great, but their presence throws Jerusalem into chaos and unleashes a bloody tragedy in the streets of Bethlehem as Herod seeks to keep his power in place by killing all the boys two and under. Jesus escapes because Joseph is told in another dream to take the family and flee to Egypt because Herod's on his way. And once again, Joseph wakes up and he does what he is told. He is obedient and he leaves the home that he has built, probably with his own hands, the business and relationships that he has developed. With bloodthirsty Herod on his heels, he takes his family to another country. His obedience is tinged with loss, but now it has the added benefit of of danger and threat. After Herod dies, Joseph once again obeys the directions of the Lord that he receives in a dream and relocates back to Israel in Galilee. And it is about here that Joseph disappears. But his influence and impact do not. You see, Joseph has not only obeyed the Lord, but he is also the link to David's throne. He is the link to God's covenant with Abraham. It is Joseph who leads the way into this new era, not by might or power, but by my spirit. And he shows us what that looks like by living out this this calling with courage and a willingness to give himself away, his willingness to be obedient to the direction of the Lord, even when that obedience costs him something. You know, as I look back over the stories and the genealogy and the stories that you all have told us here in church, the one thing that seems to link them all together is obedience to the voice of the Lord. That's actually what makes all the difference. Obedience is the difference between being called a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord or being a king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And as we head into the New Testament, obedience will be the difference between those who can see the kingdom of heaven and step into it and those who can't. Obedience is the difference in being a true ambassador of the kingdom of heaven or just being a hearer of the word. It is obedience that leads Jesus to the cross. And so it is obedience that, have, that ultimately saves us. And we are not big on obedience in our culture. We think freedom is being able to do whatever we want whenever we want. But if we are followers of Christ, if we bear his name, if we are marked by the waters of baptism, if we have accepted and moved in his direction by the call of the Spirit, then we have already said yes to obedience. The question is whether we're doing it. How are we living it out in the story that we are currently in?
Now, I don't know what story you are currently living out right now. I don't know how that story is going. I don't know if it's comfortable or not. I don't know if it is faithful or not, but I will say this. Do not miss the chance to take your place among the saints of the church who have impacted the world by living out the kingdom Do not miss that chance because the story God is calling you into is hard or dangerous or uncomfortable. The world does not need more comfortable Christians. The world needs courageous, self-sacrificing, obedient ones, ones who imitate their master Jesus by giving themselves away just as he did. The world needs Jesus followers who are willing to trade the life they thought they were going to have, as Joseph did, and trade it for a life of impact and influence and love. And by the way, this isn't a call just for some of us, for the super-Christians, for the people standing on the platform. It's for all of us. And it isn't powered by our, or fueled by our power, or might, but by God's Spirit. The only question which remains is will we be obedient to the call of God. Would you pray with me?